Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Brian Townsend, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I cannot thank you enough. I'm so excited for our time together. I know you can't tell because I hide it well, but like we talked about before we before we hit record, everybody has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. So with your permission, we're going to start with where you were born, go all the way up with your life story to today, and then we can talk about anything you want to talk about that you're working on today and then also for tomorrow, okay? All right, great. Yeah, happy to be here, Mike. Thank you. So thanks, buddy. I appreciate you being here. I was so excited about this. So tell me about where you were born. I was born in Stuttgart, Germany. My father, really? yeah, my father was in the uh, U.S. Army, and uh, it was his second deployment to uh, to Germany, uh, and uh, born there on the military base. But uh, moved back to the United States uh, when I was still pretty young, so not a lot of memories of Germany at that at that time. So. Right. So when you moved back, did you because Dad was in the military? Did you guys move around quite a bit? Not too much. Uh, I was born later in his career. Uh, we moved back to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. And okay. and uh, I was eight or nine years old when he retired. So it was it was his last assignment. And uh, uh, so I military brat without all the move, moving. How's that? There you go. That worked. So he, so did you grow up in in Virginia? I did. Much? He uh, once he retired, he stayed uh, uh, active with the military as a contractor. And uh, we moved just down the street in Northern Virginia. And I stayed there until uh, until I graduated high school. There you go. So what was your favorite thing about growing up there? Uh, just a lot of great memories with my father. He was he was a great man and, and uh, you know, fishing and and I would spend time with him at his his he, he ran a uh, he did a lot of graphics arts, things like that uh, for the military and. And he ran a big shop there and, and I would get to spend time with him. And sometimes the entire days I'd go to work with him and, and uh, you know, help probably more uh, get in the way yeah. <laughs> of the uh, things he was working on. But just those quality memories, those those quality memories with my father. So. so I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this already, but who was the most influential person to you growing up? <laughs> It definitely my dad. Uh, <laughs> great man, um, a good family man, uh, strong work ethic, and just had a big heart. Um, you know, we we buried him a few years ago. He's at Arlington National Cemetery now in, in Washington D.C. and and uh, uh, yeah, just so proud of him. And and uh, you know, definitely uh, definitely my hero. That's awesome, buddy. So you, where did you graduate from high school? So I went to, to high school in Woodbridge, Woodbridge Senior High School. It's okay. uh, probably about 20 miles uh, south of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia there. Uh, okay. uh, interesting story there. I uh, was a very average student in high school. 
uh, my guidance counselor actually told me I should not go to college, that it would be a waste of money for uh, for my family, which, I, you know, it's, it's funny because nowadays that would never happen in a school, right? right? Uh, but, uh, and I'm not, you know, I wasn't upset about it. I, uh, but it's interesting because years later, I would think about that and, and how that impacted me. And, uh, you know, I went to college in Missouri and got a, and got three degrees. I got uh, my associate's degree, my bachelor's degree, and then I went on to, to graduate school and got my master's degree. And, um, you know, but, uh, but in high school I was, I was a very average, uh, academic student, uh, uh, and, you know, didn't stand out, uh, uh, with my grades. And, and, and she told me hey, it'd be a waste of money. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> I can't imagine a guidance counselor saying that to somebody that is just, that's gotta be one of those things that never leaves you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you know, I was never upset about it or I'm not really bitter about it or anything like that, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely. A memory. <laughs> right. A little bit, maybe. So. You're going to prove her wrong, baby. And you did. I, I think I did. I, uh, I think I, I've, I've done okay in life. So. I'm proud of you, buddy. That's awesome. So you go to, so you go to Missouri, you go to, you go to college. What did you, so you got your bachelor's degree. What was your bachelor's, or pardon me, your associates. What was your associates in? So the associates is in law enforcement. And okay. then was in criminal justice administration, which, okay. you know, really a lot of these degrees, uh, the, the associates is just a couple different electives and there yeah. you go with two degrees. But, uh, gotcha. and then I stayed here. Yeah, I, I, I actually went to uh, Kansas, Pittsburgh State, Kansas, uh, which is, uh, maybe 30, 40 minutes away from, from the school in Missouri. I went to Missouri Southern mm -hmm. and uh, got my master's in human resources. There you go. <laughs> what made you pick human resources? Well, you know, I knew back then I had an interest in training and okay. it, it was the way they, they, they referenced the, uh, the masters in human resources. It was a, it was a counselor. I had another counselor, but a good story at the time <laughs> who, who had the, had the same degree. And he said, uh, you know, based on uh, the things I've talked about and my interests in life that he thought this would be a good avenue. And I checked it out and, and uh, yeah, it, well, it was, I ended up being a graduate assistant. So they paid, uh, they paid my tuition and, and, and gave me a, a small little salary of, I think a whopping $300 a month and uh, wow. but no complaining. Hey, they, right. you know, they paid for all my credit hours and that was the most important thing. So that's awesome, man. That's awesome. So you <laughs> graduate, you graduate from Pittsburgh, right? And where do you go from there? So during right during my uh, my graduate program, I started uh, as a police officer in Joplin, Missouri. So that was my first uh, career in law enforcement. Okay, uh, knew I wanted to go in law enforcement. My my goals were actually set on DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. But quite frankly, I didn't know how I was going to get there. Right. So, um, but a friend of mine said, "Hey, you need to, you know, once you look at the police department, uh, it's a good way to start and, and get your feet wet and see whether or not you even like this profession." And right. uh, the first day, I fell in love with it. And yeah. yeah. So let me ask you this, and I'm sure you know what I'm going to ask you, but why the why DEA? Why why were you? Because it sounds like you have it sounds like you had a passion. And I know you still do, but I mean, it sounds like at the time you had a passion to for for the DEA. What what made you decide to do that? Yeah, I saw what drugs did early on. Uh, thankfully, I had a good family. Like I said, uh, great mom and dad. Um, but I definitely saw what drugs were doing to the community that I lived in. Yeah, 
And I just, I knew that I, I didn't like drugs and I, and, and I, and I saw the, the devastating impact that it had on families and people. Mm-hmm. And I just made a decision that I wanted to be part of some type of solution to prevent that type of harm on folks. And again, I had no idea what that road, how that would be paved, how it would get there. Uh, I remember uh, I was at a, a, a career field, uh, fair and some DEA agents were there. Yeah. And it was just so intimidating just to even go up to them and, and say hello to them. And, uh, um, but I did and got some really good information. And then I was actually working at a restaurant with a, a lady whose husband worked at the FBI Academy in Quantico. Oh, and Quantico go. is about 30 minutes south, further south of me. Yeah. Uh, the DEA is co-housed at, uh, at Quantico with the FBI. Okay. And uh, he knew that I had an interest in federal law enforcement, uh, specifically the DEA. But but of course, they're, they were leaning towards the FBI because he worked there. He wasn't an agent, but uh, but he worked on the grounds there. And he says, hey, I can get you a tour. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, sure. So it was my senior year in high school. And, and I remember we went down there and <laughs> we were sitting in this uh, in the big building. It's the Jefferson building. And he was talking about integrity and and honesty and other things, uh, tenets of the FBI. And he he put a uh, he put his wallet on a on a counter and said we could we could go on the rest of our tour. And when I get back, uh, this wallet will still be here untouched. And uh, and I thought okay. And you know he was really trying to push me to the FBI. And then right around the same time, right down the hallway, this 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 academy DEA academy class. At the time, the DEA was actually in the FBI's building. Okay. T ninety nine. They built their own facility, still on the on the. Uh, uh, Quantico uh, uh, area, but uh, but at this time, like I said, they were co-housed in the exact same buildings, used the same classrooms. So right as he's doing this with the wallet, I see this this group of of guys, uh, men and women, uh, marching down the hall, and they, I mean, they had an academy uniform. They just they just looked, they looked just determined. Yeah. And he made a comment that that was DEA, and I didn't say anything to him, but I thought my that's exactly <laughs> I want to I want right. to be one of those guys, you know, and right. Uh, yeah, a silly story, but uh, no, but, I love it. I uh, love it because it's it's yeah. it's about how you made the decision, right? And what attracted you to it. Because here's the thing: there are going to be people that are going to listen to this podcast that are thinking about going into the DEA, right? There are going to yeah. be people that are listening to this podcast that are thinking about going into the FBI. So this is all incredibly important because they haven't taken that tour yet, right? They haven't had the experiences that you've had. That's why that's one of the reasons I was so excited about this, because I wanted to get sort of a behind the scenes look at what it's like. Right. Like, you know, one of the things, one question that I have, I know I have a million questions. I apologize. (laughs) We could probably be here for three days. We don't have that much time. But um, when you started in Joplin as a as a police officer, what was it that made you fall in love with law enforcement the first day? Wow. Uh, so much. Uh, you just had this instant, uh, feeling of gratification of helping people. Okay. No, I mean, uh, some of the calls we went on that, that first day, uh, when I was actually just riding with the mm-hmm. officers, um, it was just, it was just, it was interesting. Cause these are, these are people that could make a difference in their communities and yeah. make communities safer. And, and, and I buy into that. I think that's an important part of law enforcement is, is, yeah. is truly making, our community safer and, and and being able to live, you know, lives without crime and 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 all the other crap out there. 
So an opportunity to serve and an opportunity to make somebody's life better through what Absolutely. you do for a living. Yeah, that's cool. I and love you, it. And you get that feeling right away. Uh, you really do. I mean, it's it's incredible. Yeah. I've been on ride-alongs before. I had some, when I was, when I was um, in college, I was working my way through college and I was working night crew. So I would work a graveyard. And in the mornings after my graveyard shift, I would go to the local gym. Well, third watch was there, right? And so local PD. And so I got to know these guys, got lifting weights with them. And, you know, we'd go out after and all this stuff because they just gotten off work too, right? And I ended up doing a, uh, some ride-alongs and I ended up dating the acting chief of police's daughter. And he <laughs> found out that I was on ride-alongs and he's like, you're joining the PD. That's all there is to it. You're joining, right? So he put the full court press on. Yeah. And my parents found out that I was considering law enforcement and they lost their minds. Oh my goodness. It's the wow. only reason it's the only reason I didn't get into law enforcement. So when I told you before that I have an appreciation for what you did and what you do uh, or have done um, and what you do, it's, it really is from, from the bottom of my heart. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I went on a bunch of ride-alongs and I actually ended up helping people, even though I was, you know, not a sworn officer or any of that kind of stuff. I jumped in and helped some in some situations. And um, it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. It was gratifying as all get out. So um yeah. Definitely was, a fun profession, that's for sure. Yeah, it really is. Really is. So um so you so you're a police officer at Joplin and you end up I guess I guess you end up applying to the DEA, right? I did in 1998. Uh, the application process for DEA is really long. Um, I, I actually got hired in probably record time. I think it was about 10 months, which is crazy. Um, I have friends that took three or four years before they wow. uh, went to the academy. So we just, I just was the right time. You know, we, they were hiring a lot uh, and uh, and put in. And 10 months later, I was at the academy. So what was it like? Having wanting, having wanted to do this for as long as you had, right, and seeing those and seeing those those people yeah. march down the the hallway, <laughs> right? What yeah. was it like? Describe the feeling. What was it like your first day? Like when you your first day at the academy, your first day you're in the DEA. I was proud. Yeah. I was doing. I was fulfilling a dream. You know, this was something that you know a, a young uh high school kid decided he wanted to do didn't know what that meant you know um and, and like i said a guidance counselor is telling me don't even don't even go to school you know and and yeah. that was my background you know and and uh it felt really good it just it felt amazing to 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 have a dream and fulfill that dream and to be there you just have to kind of take a breath and and realize that wow you know here i am and and uh and it was the start of a, an amazing career and an amazing agency. And I'm very proud of that. 28 years, right? 20, 23 with the DEA. I was, I was a police officer in Joplin for the five years. Oh, gotcha. and, okay. And, so yeah. 28 total in law enforcement. So 23 years with the DEA. What was your favorite thing about that 23 years? All the people I worked with. Yeah. I mean, whether it was at DEA, other federal agencies, state, local agencies, uh, even the foreign counterparts that we worked with. I mean, just the relationships were are amazing. Uh, and that's one thing that DEA really has a 
uh, really does well is, is build relationships. And you go into any DEA office in the, in, in the United States and, and it's full of, of state and local officers. I mean, that's without state and local support to DEA, DEA would have a very small piece of, of what they do. Um, but those relationships are incredible. Um, those relationships I still have to this day. I mean, just because I retired, you know, they, they certainly didn't end. Um, but yeah, no, it was a great career. I, I, I spent, uh, I spent many years in Arkansas, uh, Texas, uh, Virginia at our academy. I spent four years there and then I was able to come back to Missouri for the last few years. And um, all the assignments were, were different, um, but all were very rewarding and, and, and gave me a, a a great perspective of, of the overall work that DEA does. Uh, gotcha. So you decide to retire from your dream job. <laughs> yeah. Right. Tell me about that. What made you ultimately decide to do that? Well, I was fully vested in my retirement system, which I know sounds okay. silly, but that's definitely a, a has oh, it's not silly. Uh, I, you have to have you have to have at least 20 years of service it'd be 50 years age so when right. 50 years of age so when i turned 50 the thought always you know is in your head like you know i now i can leave mm -hmm. because of the uh the work i do um, it's in the dea if you're a special agent you're what's called an 1811 series okay. and our retirement's a little different than typical government employees for instance we get 1.7 percent a year uh as opposed to just 1% a year towards our uh, retirement, things like that. And, and, and but the downside of it is we can only stay till we're age 57. Oh, okay. 57, if you're an 1811, unless you, you age out, exception, you age out and you have to okay. go. Okay. So that's why they, they, they front load uh, your retirement. So a lot of guys are thinking, all right, do we stay, do I, do I stay till, or the argument is, do I stay till I'm 57? Right. Try to get a new career. If I, if I want to work, or do I leave when I'm eligible when you're still quote unquote young enough to for an organ for another organization to say, because let's face it, there's a lot of organizations out there, it's not, not gonna take 57, 58 year old people. Right. I know that's against the law and 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 but they'll come up with another reason not to hire you. Oh yeah. Well, um, I'm 57. <laughs> I'm completely unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly don't mean that, but but uh no, I'm I'm not joking. <laughs> and there's a lot of folks in DEA that stay till they're 57 and, and, and they go on to have wonderful careers in other professions, uh, you know, but, but there is this, there is this discussion within the federal law enforcement community on whether or not, you know, do you leave when you're 50, when you're still younger, yeah. uh, not that 57 is old by any, by any account, but, uh, oh, it is. I... <laughs> <laughs> But but it is a number, and some organizations will look at that. So so you know that that conversation is playing in my head, and then oh, just sure. the fact that I, I love DEA. Like I said, it was my dream job, and in my last assignment in Missouri, I was the uh, what they call the resident agent in charge. So I was in charge of my office, yeah. twenty five counties in Southwest Missouri, and and a great relationship with uh, all the agencies that we worked with, and and and, and a lot of good work, especially with uh, with opioids, specifically fentanyl. Um, I mean, we were doing a lot of stuff, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm 50, I'm eligible to retire yeah. and I'm looking at my life going, all right, there's so many other things I want to do as much as I love DEA. And as much as law enforcement has been a wonderful career, um, you know, I, I, I just felt like this was a time to go, you yeah. know, this was a time to just pass the reins on to someone else and let me, uh, and let me start a new chapter in my book. 
And that's exactly what I did. I, I waited to about a month before I turned 51 and, yeah. and, uh, and pulled the plug and, and, you know, there's no regrets. I, uh, I'm happy to, you know, I do, I, I say no regrets. I do miss DEA. I do miss, uh, the people I worked with were amazing, but, uh, but again, those, those relationships, they didn't end because I left. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you leave DEA, you then start Eagle six training. Yeah. So I, I, Started Eagle Six Training, which is my own uh, training and consulting uh, business. Uh, and my idea was really to work more with business uh, and a little bit of law enforcement. But what I found out was uh, most 99% of my contacts in this world are all law enforcement. Right. So, so, yeah. So I've continued to work with law enforcement. And that led into a different job, which I now I have two jobs. I have my own self-employment with Eagle Six Training, and then I work for a uh, for what's called a risk center, and I'm a law enforcement training coordinator for them. And what I do for them is I, uh, uh, I support law enforcement in nine states uh, in the Midwest and uh, as a law enforcement training coordinator. So I develop curriculum and I teach classes to, uh, to law enforcement in the nine states. Oh, that's so. awesome. Good for you. <laughs> now, let me ask you this, and I, I'm sure you know what I'm getting ready to ask you, but why the name Eagle Six? So the DEA uh, Eagle is 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 our is our bird is is, right. is representative of the DEA, and then Six is kind of representative of having someone's back, you know. Uh, watch your six, right? Watching, yeah, watching your six exactly. So I just it just made sense, Eagle Six yeah. training. You know, you come to me, and 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 we'll take care of your training needs. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. That's perfect. So tell, tell tell us about Eagle Six training, but then let's talk about let's talk about these the the teaching you're doing because it sounds like you really light up when you talk about the teaching that you're doing. Yeah, so one of my passions uh, as far as training and, and teaching is is leadership. Uh, I get so aggravated at the, the lack of leadership development in organizations. And I saw that at DEA, one of the things I got to do for four years, uh, 2016 to 2020, I was assigned to the to our academy at Quantico. And I was in charge of most in-service training and including our leadership uh, training. And in fact, I was able to uh, start, I was able to branch off of our leadership classes and start a, a training, a leadership training unit for DEA, which still stands today. And it's a 10,000 person uh, uh workforce and and we were tasked with uh with conducting all leadership training for for DEA and and one of our emphasis or our emphasis really was uh was to train our first line supervisors and we're mandated actually uh, our DEA is mandated by the Department of Justice to train first line supervisors within so many days of their prom promotion and it seemed like all of our efforts were there and there's nothing wrong with that i mean you know but 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 the frustration is is why aren't we developing our folks before they get to that part right you know we were checking a box saying okay congratulations you've been promoted right now we're going to train you within six months of your promotion right we have guys that come men and women who come to our class who who've been been in seat for six months if not longer who are now doing the job yeah you know and and how much damage can you do in six months <laughs> quite a no, bit i'm not joking let's be yeah. honest i've been i've been part of organizations where leadership was horrible Right. I've been part and 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 they needed training like you're doing badly. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's and and the people, no joke. Now, this is, you know, what makes and you said this earlier, what makes the DEA the DEA is the people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And 
you want to retain and help to enhance that talent. You don't want to be sending them out the door because somebody just got their their box checked and now they're a new now they're a new supervisor. Now they're in a leadership role and they're running people away or running people off. You don't want that. And bad leadership takes forever to try to correct. You know, the damage that bad leadership does is really rough. And it's hard to get that trust back and get that, that engagement back, right? What you, what you're doing, what you did when you were there and what you're doing now is absolutely invaluable to any organization, let alone the DEA. Yeah, no, I agree. That's one thing I, I I teach quite a bit is is leadership's impactful. Yeah, you know what we do and what we don't do is impactful. Yeah, you know when you take that, unless you know this is a volunteer thing to become a, a manager in a, an organization. People yeah. aren't, you know, giving you that title. I mean, you're applying for that title or you're selected for that title, and what you decide to do with that title is very impactful. For the for the men and women who 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 are on your team now, yeah, and it 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 that's your culture and your, your organization. You know, we it all starts there. I mean, you can look at all the research out there. I mean, uh, the one I, I cite quite a bit, the Gallup does a poll every year, the State of the American Workforce. Mm-hmm. You know, and just just that that survey alone, that research alone shows that seventy percent of employees' engagement is determined by his or her first line supervisor. That's that's yeah. significant. So yeah. when I talk to folks, I don't care if it's a if it's a CEO or if it's the chief of police or if it's a, a person who just started in the organization a day ago. Mm-hmm. They have to know that this is impactful and this is a lifelong journey. You know, you just it's it's like the term leader. I hate when people say leaders, leaders, leaders. You know, our political leaders, our agency leaders, our organizational leaders. You have to earn that title. Yes, you do. Absolutely. I mean, Amen, you, brother. Amen. The 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 Title on your card or your door means nothing. You know, you, leadership is is impactful and it's intentional. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's the frustration is so many organizations out there, whether it's law enforcement or just business in general, we're just, it's a crapshoot. I mean, mm-hmm. we're just saying, hey, congratulations, Mike, you were the best at your job. So now we're going to make you a leader. Well, right. perhaps you you did really well making widgets, but but maybe you're not a good supervisor of, of others making, making the widgets. Right. You, know? right. you might sell, okay. you know what, yeah. out of widgets, yeah. right? But that yeah. doesn't mean you can lead people. It's totally different. And that's, exactly. and that's, the, uh, that's the disconnect. That's so frustrating. And I saw that and DEA had the same issues that other organizations do. I mean, we had good leaders, we had bad leaders. So we had good leaders and bad managers. I just made yeah. a mistake using that term again. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, and that's that's really where my my thought was is is we really need to develop folks from out of the gate. We yeah. can't wait until they're in these positions. You know, I totally. when I hear about these organizations that are only training upper management, well, I mean, they they probably were in management for many a long long time. I mean, wh- why are we giving them training? That they're they're the ones that should be training and mentoring the other folks so they can replace themselves and and and, and have a, a fresh continuation of, of leadership in their organization. Um, so really that was a huge inspiration of, of and a huge reason of why I wanted to start Eagle Six Training is, is, is I love the leadership part of it. Now I do, like I said, a lot other, a lot, I do different things as well, but the leadership thing is, is really, really powerful. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's, you know, it, you go back to that counselor in high school, 
Okay. Now, no, I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to open a, a wound. I'm just saying you go back to that counselor in high school. Okay. Now let's let's be honest here. That counselor in high school had a leadership opportunity with you that was completely blown. Now, your to your credit, you went out and proved her wrong. Okay. But this is this is indicative of exactly what we're talking about in terms of this vacuum, right? That's, I guarantee you that counselor had absolutely no idea the kind of impact that she was having and nobody ever had that conversation with her, yeah. right? Absolutely. One of the things that I'm a big proponent of is parenting. Parenting isn't anything more than management of your children. That's all it is. It's leadership, okay? It's leadership. And so one of the other things that I'm big time, I know you can't tell that I'm passionate about this stuff, but I, I hide it well, right? But the other thing that I'm that I'm a big proponent of and a huge fan of is the power of questions. Mm -hmm. The Socratic method, right? Absolutely. Because yep. here's the thing. Open I can up. talk at you all day long and you'll hear a very small percentage. I know from research, and you mm -hmm. know this, you'll hear a very small percentage of what I say. But- if I ask you questions and you answer those questions, right, you're going to retain almost everything that we talked about. Why? Because the answer came out of your mouth, not mine. 100%. You, you yep. look at the best instructors and the best leaders on the planet, and they totally understand the power of questions. Absolutely. They sit with you. And they can pull out of you exactly what they need to find out. And they can help you solve whatever the potential issue is. They can help you solve it yourself. I agree. I agree. And that's why a lot of times when I do leadership training, I will I will facilitate conversations yeah. amongst the group. Yeah. Anyone can get up there and put a PowerPoint on and say, yeah. you know, this is servant leadership and xyz here's and, step one here's step yeah, two right exactly and how many and like you said you nailed it on the head how many people how many folks are actually going to remember that and apply right. but if i go to you and i say tell me about a time you worked for a good leader yeah what kind of impact did i have on on your personal life right and you're gonna you know and and, and maybe we'll chart them out and now yeah. talk about a time when you've worked for a bad manager Mm -hmm. Remember those times, and then you know, of course, that's usually followed by a lot of head shaking and 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 a, and a lot of bad memories. Right. And then we'll chart those things out. But I'm I'm getting folks engaged to think right. about things, and it and it does it, it opens up learning, and it also opens up uh, an opportunity for them to to understand just how impactful it was, or how impactful it is because they're because they're relating it to their own lessons. Right. I remember when I worked for a toxic boss personally. Yeah. I can think of all the things I learned not to do when right. I went into it. Right. So I, based on my own experiences, I knew how impactful that was. Yeah. So now so we're one of the most yeah, yeah, one of the most powerful things you can do. I didn't mean to interrupt you, sorry. Oh, but no. One of the most powerful things you can do is ask them point blank. You had this toxic boss that you just described. How would you do better? Yeah. Right. If you 100%. were, if you put yourself in their shoes, how would you improve on what they did? And it gets them to a point to where they start thinking, I have about being a leader, right? Not just, not just somebody who's sitting in a seat, 
right? Because what happens a lot of times, and you know this, in a bunch of these big organizations, and I don't know the DEA, I, you're the first person I've met that's in the DEA. Well, I say it's not true. I've met other people who are in the DEA, but <laughs> you're the first person that I've interviewed that's that's been in the DEA. But these large organizations, and the military is one of them, right? So in the military, you, 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 you're in there a certain amount of time and you keep your nose clean and you get promoted. Then you keep your nose clean, you get promoted time, 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 okay? And you get promoted, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good leader. It just means you've been in longer than everybody else. And, and you kept your nose clean, right? Yeah. And you yeah. you kiss the right tuchuses, right? I mean, whatever, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? So at some point, when they become that, like you said, checkbox, they're now a, they're now a manager. Some of these people go to work with old axes to grind and, you know, trying to, trying to wield their power to do, I mean, come on, man, we need to get to those people. Like you're saying before they become that, that, that position of power so that they understand that absolutely everything they say has an impact. Everything they do has an impact. And I would submit to you all their facial expressions do too, right? When you look sad, people notice. When you look mad, people notice, right? It has an impact on the people around you. That's what being a leader is. A leader is you've got to care more about that person you're leading than you do about yourself. Sorry, man. I'm just, I'm. No, I, I, you know? I, yeah. I absolutely agree. You're right. You know, when I, I have three tenets of, of what I consider leadership, it's impactful, it's intentional, and it starts with yourself. Yeah. Those three things are, are the basis of everything I've developed. Yeah. And it's it's not rocket science. This is this it's is common stuff that but we we seem to just not forget not pick this up. I mean, you look at yeah. leadership books. I mean, you can you can pull leadership books from 1910, you pull them from 2024. There's no there's no nothing new is being developed. It's the yeah. same stuff, it's just being regurgitated. It's 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 the fact that we don't understand the impact that leadership has, or a lot of folks don't. They don't understand how intentional it is. You just can't, again, you can't just say, oh, my card says I'm the I'm the boss. So they're, they're, I'm a leader now. No, yeah. it's, it has to be an intentional act. And it also, like I said, the last thing for me is it starts with yourself. If you can't sit down and look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, how am I going to best prepare myself to be a servant to the folks that I am fortunate enough to, to, to have a, on my team? Right. You can't have that discussion, then then you should have never volunteered for, for that, uh, for that title. I totally agree. Yeah. It goes back. It goes back to Jesus washing his followers feet, right? It's yep. as simple as that. It's servant leadership, right? And one Absolutely. of the, one of my favorite things to do when you're a leader is to sit with the people that are working for you and ask them, how do I win with you? Yeah. Right. It's, it's huge, right? It's amazing. Because then they can tell you what the roadmap is. And they will. They'll do it gleefully. And even I wholeheartedly agree. And even the toxic leaders out there, if they if they could understand this, even if yeah. even if they're selfish and even if all they think about is their own career and how fast up that ladder they can get, think about if they could stop and take the time to ask those types of questions and have that type of even if they don't care, um, if you make the people around you better, yeah. you're going to make yourself better. It's a rising tide. 
hundred percent. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's so it, I, I don't want them to do it for selfish reasons because ultimately people will see, people will see that's not genuine yeah. or not authentic leaders and then they'll stop caring or they'll stop working for them. But, uh, but there's so much advantage to just taking care of people. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it, and it's frustrating when, when organizations, uh, you know, they just take a they just take a gamble on folks and 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 they can destroy cultures they can destroy organizations yeah. most people leave or not, I don't say most but a lot of people leave organizations because of bad management they're looking for for greener pastures absolutely true and in law and here's something we found out right one of the things we found out during the pandemic was yeah. how unbelievably thin <laughs> that foundation was right yeah. Because we found people that were locked down for 60 days or whatever, however long it was, right? I think it was 60 days, but that that period of time that they were locked down, they went nuts. They climbed the walls. They developed more alcohol issues than they had before, more drug issues than they had before. They quit their jobs, right? Because yeah. all of a sudden, everybody started re-examining where they lived. They started re-examining where their kids were going to school, what their kids were being taught, right? I would submit to you that we had a real awakening in, in, during the pandemic and after because people found things out and rediscovered things that they never imagined before. You look at the you look at the you look at the organizations, I promise you, you look at the organizations carefully that succeeded in terms of retention of talent, they have leadership training and it's the right kind. It's the I right time, okay? Yep. Because those people that it 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 discovered it opened things up, kind of like an onion, right? It opened things up, and it revealed true leadership, but it also revealed lack of leadership. Yep. Right. In a major way, and so now we're in a place where I mean, you I heard this this phrase there, this um, statistic the other day from Mike Rowe from from Micro Works, yep. right? Mike Rowe says there's seven and a half million people, seven and a half million able-bodied men in the United States that are not working. Wow. That, that blows my mind. But I would submit to you that that seven and a half million men, there's a whole bunch of them that were led incorrectly. I agree. Absolutely. Okay? That's a big, big reason. And the impact that leadership has is just absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, and it can go right, major up, major down. It can be, yeah, so crazy. So I'm so excited for you. This is really cool. So are you writing a book by chance? I, slowly, but. Because uh, I'm buying it, just so, when, <laughs> just so we're clear. Yeah, I, I have a couple ideas. I mean, I, I started on one with, like I said, I, I, I've done a couple of speeches for, for some groups and conferences where I talk about really leadership's intentional it's impactful and it starts with yourself and 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 it's, it's nothing new i'm just trying to point out that we know these things you know when, when i ask you to think about a leader that you work for in your life that made a difference in your life you probably have good feelings there's probably a dopamine release you're thinking oh, yeah I miss those days you know we, we know that you know and it's like i said earlier if i asked you to talk about a leader or a manager that we worked for that was toxic that you didn't you know that you you were counting the days for you to go home how did that make you feel? Right. There's nothing new here. I'm just trying to flush out some of those ideas that we already know. Um, so yeah, I have been slowly putting those thoughts to pages, but uh, but uh, nothing nothing soon. 
Okay, so. do me a favor. <laughs> promise me, promise me that you'll come back on when you have the book ready. Okay? I and promise. And we'll promote it and we'll talk about it. All right, perfect. Thank you. Okay. Brian, I cannot thank you enough for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. This has been an amazing time and I've enjoyed every second of it. No, thank you. Uh, can I mention something else if you don't absolutely. mind? Absolutely, absolutely. Go ahead. So another passion, and we spoke about leadership a lot, which is obviously I'm very passionate about that as well, but uh, uh, I'm dedicated to raising awareness of opioids, specifically fentanyl. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, 12 to 13 people are dying every hour in the United States because of drug poisoning. And what's driving that is 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 synthetic opioids like uh, like fentanyl. Yeah. And I uh, one of the things that I do uh, is I travel across the United States and I talk about uh, the opioid epidemic and illicit fentanyl crisis. It's a four-hour presentation that I've put together. It started actually at two hours. Now it's at four, and it's very comprehensive. My website has the entire outline. I do this for free. In fact, uh, we just submitted paperwork to make this a 501c3 organization, only 2MG. And uh, the biggest impact this is having, I mean, it's having an impact all around the, the country, all the world, really. But the biggest impact is with our kids. Yeah. Um, you know, drug use has actually declined, minus marijuana, drug use has actually declined in this country over the last 20 years. But the number of people dying, especially our kids, is at record highs. It's skyrocketing, right? It's skyrocketed, absolutely. And, and, and it, it, the problem is, is now fentanyl is in the drug supply. Yeah. So the, the drugs are more dangerous. Yeah. We've, we've reduced demand. Uh, drug prevention works. When we talk to kids, especially talking to kids in schools, it works. We've proven that over the last 20 years. But the reason more kids are dying is because they don't realize that that fentanyl is a game changer. You know, uh, 28 years in law enforcement, uh, 24 of those years was, was in an enforcement capacity. I've never seen a drug more impactful. And and like I said, I, I love the leadership stuff. And, and, and that's a big part of what, what funds a lot of the things I do. Yeah. Uh, but I also have a huge passion for just talking to people and raising awareness on, on opioids, specifically fentanyl, because it's, you know, well, I used this word before, it's a game changer. It's like the kid in, I think it was Maryland, who was who was cram studying for, uh, for a test. And by the way, I've been there, right? I, I hurt my back. The first time I hurt my back was... I was cramming. I was I was living on on caffeine on on um, co coffee for two days straight, right? And I hurt I hurt my back in a in a dairy box working at at a grocery store. I was working my way through college, and I wouldn't have done that if I had gotten rest. This these kid this kid in particular bought online through Snapchat an Adderall, what he thought was Adderall, right? because he thought it would help him stay awake and stay focused. So he buys it, he takes it, it's laced with fentanyl, it kills him. And those stories- and he, He's 20 years old. Yep. I have I have friends that are in the same circumstances Just now. It's a life that's completely yeah. snuffed out. And it's because nobody got to him ahead of time like you're doing. Nobody got to him ahead of time to let him know this, this is, you're killing yourself. You know, you think you're buying Adderall, you're killing yourself. From first-time drug use too. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's happened, especially for our kids. Because you think about it, statistically speaking, when do most people try drugs? Yeah. When they're teenagers. Yeah. Not that you can't, you know, wait till you're 50 before you try drugs, but right. most people for you know, 
your your parents, your grandparents. I mean, it, this hasn't changed. Most people try things when they're adolescents, when they're teenagers. The difference is, so the behavior is the same. The difference is now we have fentanyl on our drug supply. So now we have kids like this young man who who thinks he's ordering an Adderall right. or Xanax or, or Percocet or, or Oxy or whatever. Right. And they're getting fentanyl because they don't they don't know that only two milligrams two milligrams is is a couple granules of salt or sand. Yeah. It's the tip of your pen. I mean, it's yeah. it's that small. And there have been numerous instances like the, like the example you shared, where if kids are going online, uh, Snapchat, Instagram, they're buying this stuff. They think they're getting another drug, and they're dying. Yeah. It's incredible, and that's why I said it's it's, in, it's impacting all of society, but it's definitely impacted our young people uh, more than any any other uh, age demographic. It's, it's I'm so glad you're doing so this. I'm so glad you're doing this because there's almost nobody on the planet that's as well qualified as you are to talk about this. How can people reach you to have you come talk to them? So for the opioids, it's it's www.only2mg, O-N-L-Y-2, just the number, mg.com. Only2milligrams.com. Only2milligrams.com. Okay. Do me a favor. Send me that link and we'll put it in your description um, so that we can send people to you. So you've applied to be a 501c3? I have. uh, Actually, last week, we just just sent all that in. So it'll be a while before that's uh, official. But uh, yeah. yeah, I'm excited. It. I've done 40 some presentations now. I've hit 11 states. Um, I have probably 20 more scheduled. Uh, I do it around uh, the other things that I have going on in my life, uh, Eagle Six training and in the uh, the law enforcement coordinator job. Just I have a couple of things, right? A couple of things, yeah. But <laughs> I really enjoy it. I mean, this is uh, this is one thing that's really. I know I've always told myself do something you love in life, and if you don't, then why be miserable, you know? Um, and I've been fortunate where I, I, I will, I, my entire life, I feel like someone's paying me to do things that I really enjoy to do. Yeah. Like you're giving me money to be a DEA agent. Are you kidding I me? You know, yeah. and, and, and I know that I don't get paid for, for only 2MG, but this is my way of, of, yeah. of giving back. And, and hopefully if, if it prevents a, especially a young man or woman from, from, from going online and, and buying that pill, that could uh, cost them their life. Then, uh, if I can make a difference, then, then, uh, then I think I'm doing what I'm, what I'm meant to do in this world. Well, I think you are. In fact, I know you are. And I cannot thank you enough for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I am so unbelievably proud of you. I really, really am. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you again for being here. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. And yeah, thank you. So you're gonna come back when you get the when you get the book <laughs> finished, right? I'm a slow writer. I, I I write a lot of blogs and things like that. So, uh, but uh, the book's gonna take some time. All right, but I, I promise I'll be back. How's that? I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thanks you. again. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor: smash that subscribe button. Tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program. And wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.